This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Larry Kudlow. See if I get this right. LarryKudlowShow.com. I think that's the one. They're saying yes in the control room. I'm here at WABC headquarters. A little bit under the weather, but we'll get through this. Lots to talk about. Tons of things to talk about. Jobs. Insane strategic petroleum reserve by uh, by the fossil-hating Joe Biden. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting interview with my friend. Brett Baer and President Zelensky of Ukraine. We have General Keene coming on later in the show. We'll talk about that as well. And a woke budget, a green <laughs> woke budget with 36 tax hikes. How about that? 36 tax hikes. Anyway, I want to begin with a couple of thoughts about the the war, the Russian-Ukraine war, because um, I'm going to start with, maybe this is a little bit obscure, but I want to start with this thought. For whatever reason, and I think I know what the reasons are, but for whatever reasons, the Russian ruble, right, that's their currency, the Russian ruble, which had been crashing almost from the beginning of the invasion as the U.S. and the Western NATO countries got together to impose sanctions and more military assistance to to the brave Ukrainians. Anyway... The ruble crashed. There was a joke about it, right? I don't know if you heard the joke. We did it on air from the Fox Business Cudlow Show. We did it on air a couple of times. What's the difference between a dollar and a ruble? The answer is a dollar. That was the difference. One was a currency, the other one wasn't. However, however, the ruble has basically rallied 40%, gotten back to its pretty much its old high, it's old point. And I find that troubling because if the sanctions were working, then that would not be the case. The ruble would still be falling, which shows me that the sanctions had so many loopholes that we are not bringing Putin's war machine to its knees. We were not bankrupting the guy. In fact, I will argue we are financing him. We continue to finance him. The sanctions aren't nearly tough enough. I mean, you can always, you know, learn a lot by looking at a nation's currency. And countries with chronically weak currencies are almost always, you know, weak countries. Weak at home, weak abroad. Ronald Reagan used to say the other way as he rallied, he and Paul Volcker and others rallied the dollar way back when in his first term in 1980, 1981, 82. I was there as a guy in the budget bureau in those old days. Reagan argued we had to rejuvenate the economy, end inflation, deregulate, promote growth, because 
we would be strong at home, and that would send a signal that we'd be strong abroad. And, in fact, that's just what happened. Once the inflation was cleared away, tax cuts and deregulation, uh, decontrolling oil prices. Paul Volcker did a good job restoring the strength of the dollar. The U.S. once again was the strongest country in the world and wound up defeating Soviet communism. Okay, having said all that, I would argue now the evidence suggests that Vladimir Putin still has plenty of war resources. I mean, look, we have not, we, I'm going to use that word we, don't include me, but I'm saying the Biden administration and the NATO allies have not sanctioned Russian energy, oil and gas. They are still exporting oil and gas. And payments come in because um, primary Russian banks who are engaged in the payment system for oil and gas transactions were never sanctioned. And we didn't get the secondary bank sanctions that uh, Senator Toomey wanted. In fact, I will read you this very interesting report. This comes off of Bloomberg. And the headline is, Putin may collect $321 billion windfall if oil and gas keep flowing. Well, they're flowing. So Bloomberg Economics expects Russia will earn nearly $321 billion from energy exports this year. That would be an increase of more than a third from 2021. It would also be on track for record current account surplus that the Institute of International Finance says may reach as high as $240 billion. A current account surplus basically means you're exporting more than you're importing. And basically says if, if we cut off the energy exports, uh, they would be in deep trouble. But we haven't. I don't see any evidence that we will. Now, we cut off Russian oil imports to the United States. By the way, that doesn't go into place for a couple months. It was announced last week with much fanfare, but that happened until late June. We're in early April. So that's April, May, June. Three months, we will continue to import Russian oil and gas. And I believe we will continue to pay them with dollars. As far as I know, because even though the Russian Central Bank has been sanctioned, and that's a good thing, and the sanctions were tough. It cut, it cut the Russian Central Bank, the so-called, uh, yeah, the Russian Central Bank. It, uh, the Bank of Russia was cut off from about half of their foreign exchange reserves because they couldn't transact. Nonetheless, they're still getting half, the other half. Money's coming in. The Europeans, I mean, here's one for you. Putin said this week that he would only accept rubles as payment in return for uh, energy purchases by Europe. And uh, Germany and the others said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to pay you in euros. And Putin backed down. He'll take euros. He'll take anything. The point is, why are we doing this? The sanctions are so Swiss cheese-like, huge holes, 
that Russia has not been damaged financially. And the point of the exercise was to, to do just that, to cut off the financing of his war machine. We haven't done it. We have not done it. And that's why the ruble is going back up. It's up about 40%. It's just about back to where it was before the war started. Well, that's not good. I mean, it's like, here's the point. The Ukrainians, brave, 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 courageous Ukrainians are doing their job. They're doing more than their job because they have outperformed all expectations. Not only has Russia not conquered Ukraine in three days, which is what folks thought was going to happen. Russia may be retreating, at least from Kiev and some other cities, back to the eastern part of the country where they had some inherent strength to begin with. I noticed a story that the Ukrainians have bombed the Russian oil depot across the border. Great. Cool. Bomb them. I mean, Russia has committed, Putin has committed thousands of acts against humanity, killing men, women, civilians, children, people in hospitals. What he's done to the city of Mariupol. I mean, he is a war criminal. He has committed crimes against humanity. And still... President Zelensky has been brave and courageous, and the Ukrainian people have been brave. They're a gritty lot fighting back. Guts. Lots of guts. But I don't think we've done our part. Ukrainians have. I don't think we have. I don't think the West has. As long as, look, Russia, Russia's economy is a one-horse pony. It's all about oil and gas. And you could tack on to that natural resources, minerals. They don't have a wide-based, strong, I mean, it has a GDP of $1.5 trillion. The United States is, what, $23 trillion. It's not like China. China has a you know varied... Very strong economy. And the oligarchs continue to rule in Russia. The other point I want to make is, and this came up in the Brett Baer interview, Brett Baer, distinguished uh, news anchor for Fox News, interviewed President Zelensky yesterday. And Zelensky once again made a plea, you know, give us as much air power as you can. Give us as much military power as you can. We still haven't okayed. We haven't okayed those old Soviet MiGs from Poland to Ukraine. We have not done that. We haven't okayed the S-300 anti-air systems that are sitting in Slovakia. We haven't okayed that stuff. Zelensky wants it. Give it to him. Give it to him. And we haven't sanctioned their energy companies. And... Russia is selling more oil and gas to Europe today than they were a year ago. Okay, that's what this Bloomberg study says, but we knew that. That had been reported widely in the press. Nobody paid any attention to it. And again, I will say to you, the Russian, uh, the sanctions, the ban on Russian imports 
Russian energy imports to the U.S. doesn't start for three months. Huh? Actually, another one is the U.S. Treasury Department has permitted American banks to complete the payments of interest on Russia's uh, sovereign debt. We allowed that. J.P. Morgan was an agent. A couple hundred million dollars worth. Why are we doing that? I would love to see Russia default in their debt because no one will touch their bonds for a long, long time. And as far as some lenders in Western banks and companies, so be it. Suck it in. You'll be supported by your other banks or your central banks. I don't care. This is war. We need to defeat Vladimir Putin. We need to defeat him not by putting troops on the ground, but by squeezing him down financially. Financially, we haven't done that. And squeezing down in his energy. And we haven't done that. We've really never seen Biden say, never heard Biden say, he wants the Ukrainians to win the war. He's never said that. Never said that. I'd love to hear him say that. I mean, in his own sort of gaff-prone way, he did say the other day that there should be regime change. Putin should not stay in power. Well, I agree with that. So does the rest of the country. 70% new um, Rasmussen poll. 70% of Americans think there should be regime change in Russia. We can't create that. But just saying, Biden did say that. Then they walked it back. And then later on, Biden said, well, it's a moral principle. It's my personal view. You know, that was the best thing he said. His best, his best sentence in his entire presidency was hammering Putin, saying he should go. You know, another point, though, Putin's oligarchical cronies, okay, half of their richest, of their 20 richest billionaires, half of Russia's 20 richest billionaires have not yet been sanctioned. Half have been, but half have not. And that includes somebody who was not sanctioned includes the Russian oligarch who paid Hunter Biden $3.5 million. The woman, she was the, she is the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. She hasn't been sanctioned. So I guess 10 have been sanctioned, 10 have not been sanctioned. Why is that? Here's another one for you. The biggest oligarch in Russia is Putin. In addition to being a war criminal, Vladimir Putin is a crook, a crook. He has stolen, along with the generals and the oligarchs, he has stolen the Russian people blind. The guy is reportedly worth a couple of hundred billion dollars. He's a crook, corrupt, kleptomaniacal crook, which is something that uh, Biden and the West should be talking about on a daily basis, if you ask me. I've talked a lot about it on the Fox Business Show almost every night. So we have sanctioned Putin, but here's what we haven't done. We have not seized his assets. And in particular, I'm thinking about his $700 million yacht. 
which is sitting off the coast of Italy. Why haven't we sanctioned it? Why haven't we seized it? Just take it. Take it. It would be a great symbolic thing. It would be punching him in the nose. It would be a great embarrassment. Hell, if, if it were Trump, Trump would have already seized it. In fact, in fact, Trump would have gone there, had a press conference on the boat to seize it. And then he would have renamed it. <laughs> we haven't done any of that stuff. So I want to know, do we really want Ukraine to win? Do we really want to sanction financially? Do we want to sanction them in terms of energy? We have to toughen it up. We have to toughen this thing up. Putin's a war criminal. Putin's a crook. We need to defeat him. We need to defeat him. The Ukrainians are doing their job. The problem is the United States administration is not. We'll stop there and take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Stay with us. Much more to come. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. You know, by the way, uh, credit where credit is due. It was Katie Pavlich uh, on set live on The Kudlow Show on Fox Business who said that uh, if it were Donald Trump, he not only would have seized Putin's boat, the $700 million boat, but he would have gone, flown to Italy, gone out of the, held a press conference on the boat to announce the seizure and then renamed the boat. Katie Palpatine, a great lady, I might add, uh, townhall.com and Fox News contributor, great lady. Um, one other particularly stupid thing that Joe Biden did this week is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, he's going to sell 180 million over the next six months. 180 million barrels per day over the next six months. This is a very stupid idea. It's actually a very dangerous idea. The whole point of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is to protect our energy security and our national security. What do I mean? It's not. It's not political price fixing. It's not to fine tune the price of gasoline. This is the third time Biden has done this, and he's depleted this thing by about a third. All right, we're down to 300. We will be down to 388 million barrels. It actually started at 650 million barrels. But in other words, let's say you have a terrible, terrible hurricane season in Texas, Permian Basin, and you can't get any oil. That's what you use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, to cover you for a couple days or weeks not to fine-tune prices. Or worse, let's say Iran starts bombing Saudi Arabian uh, oil installations and facilities, okay? And you know the whole world is out 10 million barrels of oil. That's what the strategic petroleum is there. It's due. It's due to put in the you know, extra amount to cover the emergency, either a war or you know, natural disaster. It is not meant for political price-fixing. And by the way, as Rick Perry pointed out on the Fox Business Show last night, the hurricane season down in Texas will come at exactly the time. It's going to take them a while to set up this uh, Spro sale. And they're going to run smack into the Texas Gulf hurricane season. 
So we'll talk some more about that. I got some more time on the other side of the break because I really want to beat down this strategic petroleum thumb. It's a stupid idea. It's not a goofy idea. It's just a goofy and stupid idea. I'm Larry Cutlow. We'll be right back after some ads. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. You can dial us. You can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. You can get it all over the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. How about that? Live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. Anyway, I want to come back to this Strategic Petroleum Reserve nonsense. Let me give you some numbers. Here's how futile and shows you how political this is. Biden announced uh, yesterday, I guess, was was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. Anyway, he's going to do a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He's going to sell it out. By the way, he's going to have to replace it and probably has to replace it. God knows it could be a higher price. Price of oil is about a hundred dollars a barrel. It fell six bucks, seven bucks on the announcement. And then it stopped. Now, globally, all right, it's a world oil market. The price of oil is set globally. You have two benchmark measures. One is West Texas crude. These things trade, you know, contracts, spot, futures, and then there's Brent crude, sometimes called European crude. So those are the two measures. Brent crude generally trades in recent years a couple dollars higher than West Texas Intermediate Crude, WTI. All right. So he's going to put in, he's going to sell $180 million, million barrels a day, and he thinks that's going to bring down the oil price. And then, of course, remember, oil prices then get refined into gasoline. And, of course, by the by, you have all kinds of boutique formulas as the summer comes on, different cities have different formulas. It's very complicated. You can't just if, if if the price if the world price of oil moves up or down, gasoline prices take a little while. Biden does know that. He's always attacking the fossil fuel companies for excess profits and price gouging. That's all a lot of nonsense. Gasoline prices actually have been slipping down slightly. But worldwide, which is what you're dealing with here. Worldwide, over the next six months, there will be a demand of roughly 18 billion barrels per day. 18 billion. All right, what Biden's going to do is put on the market an extra 180 million barrels per day. So it's nothing. It amounts to nothing. 18 billion is global demand right now. That hasn't moved much. You know, it did come down during the pandemic. It's gone back up. That would be the six. Roughly, it's 100 million barrels a day supplied and demanded. So over six months, it would be 18 billion. Biden's going to do 1 million a day for 180 million. You can see it's a drop in the bucket. It's like throwing pebbles into the ocean. It's pure politics. That's all. It's pure politics. 
Nothing more, nothing less. It will have no impact, no, certainly no permanent impact on the price of oil or the price of gasoline, which uh, AAA gasoline is still over $4 a gallon. Some states much higher. You follow? 180 million he's going to put in, but the world is, is buying 18 billion. So come on. This is nothing but politics. And then, of course, he has to get up there and attack the fossil fuel companies. Can't resist that because really this entire administration and all these left-wing zealots who believe that we have an immediate existential climate risk, which we do not. These are 100-year trends. Right, The sea level will go up a half an inch in the next 80 years. It's not, ex- it's not immediate, and it's not existential, and it ain't much of a risk. And by the way, we'll probably figure out lots of ways for clean-burning fuel. Um, former Energy Secretary and Governor of Texas Rick Perry uh, was on the Cudlow Fox Business Show last night, and he was saying, you know, the best thing we could do is produce as much natural gas as possible liquefied natural gas, LNG, and sell it around the world. And that would replace, and by the way, our LNG is the cleanest burning liquefied natural gas. Russia's very dirty. India is relying on coal. China is relying on coal, much dirtier than our clean burning natural gas LNG. You follow me? So if we pumped out, I mean, if Biden had a brain and we pumped out, as much oil and gas as we possibly could. I mean, hell, we could get to 15 million barrels a day of oil. We were at over 13 million. We're still stuck at 11.5 million because of his war, his jihad, his fatwa against the fossil fuel companies. So LNG would be the savior, clean burning, LNG and nuclear, by the way. And that, as Rick Perry said, you, you could use that to replace all of the polluting, dirty coal coming out of India and China, just to mention two big polluters. There's a solution. But Biden is obsessed. The left-wing ideology, it's like a religion. They hate fossil fuel. They basically want to end fossil fuels. If They, could, if they have an eight-year deadline for net zero carbon emissions. <laughs> all right, take it all. If we did that, if we actually did that, our economy would would crumble. Tens of millions of jobs would be lost. I mean, we would crumble. And, by the way, Vladimir Putin sit there with a big crocodile smile because he'd be a big winner since that's all he's got is oil and gas. You see, that's how stupid this is. It will have no impact on the price. We will deplete our emergency reserves when we might need them for a seriously real emergency. And he wants to stop fossil fuels anyway. And by the way, he's taken it down by 35-some-odd percent. It's a crazy idea. All to please his little lefty greenies that populate his little White House and all these departments, FERC, Interior, Energy, EPA, All they do is wage war. And he has this phony argument about there's 9,000 leases, which is not a true number. But you know what? It's bait and switch. 
9,000 leases doesn't mean anything. A lot of them are dry holes. But, 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 you can't drill without a permit. And you can't pipeline without a permit. And these regulatory agencies like FERC and Energy and Interior and EPA have clamped down with severe restrictions and they're not granting permits. So I don't care if you have a million leases. If you don't get a permit, you can't drill. If you don't get a permit, you can't build a pipeline to transport the fuel. That's what a phony Joe Biden is, a phony. Political nonsense, political price fixing on his way to destroying our energy system, which is the backbone of our economy. But you know what, folks? You know what, really? I remain optimistic because the cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. And this is all going to change. I just hope we get to the cavalry in the next six months. I'm Cudlow. We have Senator Ron Johnson on the other side of the break. Talk about Hunter Biden's laptop and a few other things. I'm Cudlow. Please stick around. Larry Cudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show, and we are very pleased to welcome back to the show my friend Senator Ron Johnson of the great state of Wisconsin. Uh, Senator, I know you're on a tight leash today. We appreciate your time, and I think you and I can chat it up on Monday on the Fox Business TV show, but we appreciate you today. And I want to talk to you about Hunter Biden's laptop, but before I do, Senator Johnson— I just want to get your take on this strategic petroleum reserve business, 180 million uh, barrels per day sale in a, in a market that over the six-month period would be demanding $18 billion. Um, I mean, I kind of think this is one of the dumbest things in history, but I just want to give you a whack at it as a former businessman. What you think, sir? Oh, good, good morning, Larry, but I mean, you're – that's all relative to the other dumb things that uh, and destructive <laughs> things that the Biden administration is doing. No, I, I agree with your assessment. I, I was listening a little bit before uh, the break here. Um, it, it, we have a, a strategic reserve for a reason, and this isn't it. Uh, it might have some negligible impact. I don't know. I've, I've been read, reading reports five cents a gallon or something like that. I don't know what it's going to be, uh, but. You are exactly right. The high gasoline prices, high energy prices, are the result of the Democrats' war on fossil fuel. You combine that with their out-of-control deficit spending, uh, which is being spent, by the way, on programs making it possible for people not to return to the workforce. This, this is a triple whammy. So, you know, we're war on fossil fuel, driving up energy prices. Energy prices affect every good and service, drive, you know, causing them to inflate. You have you print way too many dollars chasing even fewer goods because manufacturers can't hire the people to fill up the shifts to meet their demand. So is it any wonder we've got 40 year high inflation uh, with, quite honestly, no end in sight from what I can tell? I really think we're in this wage price spiral that I mean, you know better than I how difficult it was for Ronald Reagan and Paul Volcker to break that. It's it's a painful process. Yes, it is. You know, my only. Uh disagreement is it's i i think senator it's a it's a price wage spiral 
In other words, the deficit spending and the money printing to create it has driven up prices. And then you've got the workforce coming back to work. They're just trying to raise, you know, get higher wages to keep up with the prices. So I call it a price wage spiral, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I just want to, you know, this budget has 36 different taxes in it. And by the way, 11 aimed directly at fossil fuels. But, of course, the corporate tax and the capital gains tax and the individual tax and then the unrealized capital gains wealth tax, all that would damage fossil fuel entrepreneurs as well. But, you know, go figure. He, he, he wants to put more, more oil on the market, and he's jacking up the tax burdens by 36 individual taxes. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It makes no sense whatsoever. When you consider we're over $30 trillion in debt and the number one component of a solution for us to try and get out from underneath this crushing burden of debt is economic growth. What, you know, taxes do not – increased taxes do not generate more growth. It, it retards economic activity. And so everything this administration's doing right now is harmful to the economic growth we need. We're, we're back into regulatory overdrive. Now, I've always thought that the most significant thing that you guys did, President Trump did in the previous administration, is we stopped adding to the regulatory burden. So, so that businesses, entrepreneurs could focus on their customers and on their products and on their services rather than looking over their shoulder, shoulder going, okay, what, what new regulation am I going to have to spend time and energy to comply with so I don't have to pay a big fine or get put in jail? It's very destructive to entrepreneurial, uh, the, the animal spirits that we really require for economic growth. Yes, amen to all that. Now, Senator, um, last night I had uh, your colleague, Senator Grassley, on talking about the Hunter Biden laptop and the various implications of it. Uh, I know you and he have worked together on this. I, I just had a couple questions that, you know, probably not answerable now, but. You have this laptop, and the information comes out. We don't know all the information, but we know that payments were made because uh, the laptop covered 2010 to 2017. Now, he's still getting paid. Uh, Hunter Biden's getting paid from this China oil fund uh, or whatever um, as recently as March of 2018. Senator Ron Johnson, when Tony Bobolinsky told us that the big guy, meaning Joe Biden, was going to get 10 percent of the take. Is there any way to know or calculate over that period from 2010 to 2017 or 2018 what Joe Biden got? And especially the fact that he was vice president during much of that time. What did he get? Does anybody have any idea? Well, you know, what's interesting, Larry, is John Solomon wrote a very interesting column probably over a year ago where, you know, just through public records, you know, President, candidate Biden released his, uh, I guess, income tax information. I'm not sure he released his returns, but it showed about, uh, this off the top of my head, I think $16 million of income over the span of a few years. But his net worth that he reported on his disclosure form was somewhere in the two to three, $2 to $3 million range. Mm-hmm. So h- how do you make $16 million but only have, a net worth of around three. So something's not adding up there. Um, 
But, you know, it's, what is interesting, because, you know, and by the way, Senator Grassley was just a tenacious partner in doing this investigation. I just so value his work and his staff's work. We really worked together well. But, uh, you know, we, we uncovered major dollar trans, uh, transactions here and transfers, you know, in the millions and millions of dollars. But the ones we've, you know, specifically uh, highlighted, you're going to add up $13 million really quick, you know, $5 million from one Chinese entity, a million directly into Hunter Biden's uh, firms. Then you got three and a half million from Russia. You got four million from uh, Burisma. That's that's thirteen million dollars. Now maybe in the Biden crime family, that's not a whole lot of money. But to average Americans, that's that's a lot of corruption right there. That's a lot of sleaze, and that is what the mainstream media has not only ignored but covered up. Now, I, I thought this Washington Post article was pretty pretty interesting. They learned well from their coverage of of Nixon scandals because when you get caught in a cover-up, you do a modified limited hangout, and that's what the New York Times, that's what the Washington Post are doing. They're they're not coming clean on this. They are doing the bare minimum reporting to, I guess, cover their you-know-what in terms of their complicity in all this political turmoil that they helped create with the Russian hoax, the covering up of the Hunter Biden story so that Joe Biden would be elected president. And now we see the results. High energy prices, inflation, uh, Putin's invasion into Ukraine. Democrat governance has been a disaster for this country. Yes, indeed. By the way, uh, I, I, I think the world of Chuck Grassley. I've known him a long time. I, I worked with him in the White House quite a bit. Uh, he's a great patriot, as are you, Ron Johnson, an old friend. But, you know, when I look at this story I'm much more interested, and it's interesting the numbers you were just uh, mentioning, because I, I want to, you know, show me the money, follow the money. With all these sums of money, payments, whether it's China, Ukraine, Russia, the, you know, the wife of the mayor, Moscow, and all this stuff, I want to know, is it possible that Joe Biden didn't get anything? I just don't believe that, sir. I don't be, I believe Joe Biden got hit. I mean, whether it was Tony Bobulinski's 10 percent for the big guy or what. And that's the part of the story that hasn't come out yet. I guess going to require more digging, more investigation subpoenas. But to me, this guy was vice president when this money was changing hands. And and Senator Johnson, for all we know, it's continuing I mean, Miranda Devine says that Hunter Biden is still on the board of this Chinese energy company. Well, you know, the Washington Post said there's no evidence that Joe Biden is in on this. There's all kinds of evidence. I mean, Tony Blops, Bob Belinsky brought it up saying, you know, again, Kemp sent for the big guy. Mm. Uh, he confirmed that. You know, Joe Biden repeatedly lied to the American public, saying, I never talked to Hunter about uh, my overseas connections. <laughs> these business partners obviously he did so we know that joe biden has lied boldface on us you know this thing do we know all the details no but larry i tell you who does chinese intelligence russian intelligence iranian north korean intelligence my guess is u.s intelligence agencies probably the fbi know a whole lot more but they're just not going to tell us i mean they were running operations against me and charles grassley our own government was Democrat Democrat senators were lying about us, creating false intelligence products, 
leaking those to the media. And, of course, the dutiful, dutiful uh, complicit media ran these stories trying to smear us to undermine our true report. So th- this is sleazy. I personally think Joe Biden is absolutely compromised. Why else would he cancel the waivers on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? Why would he cancel the China initiative, which was designed to investigate and stop China's theft of our intellectual property and universities? Why would he do that? Other than maybe, maybe he knows that China knows a whole lot more than we know. You know, Senator, if, if the cavalry comes and you all retake the Senate, there's a high probability that's going to happen. Will there be ways, investigative, subpoena-type ways and means to get at the truth of this, to get to the bottom of this? Larry, if I, if I survive my reelection, it's going to be a tough one. And I hate to do this to you. i got to do a full Lindsey Graham. It's Ron Johnson for Senate.com. I need a lot of help. But here's the bottom line. If I get reelected and we take the majority, I'll be the chairman of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. I'll have stronger subpoena power than I did while we were trying to investigate Hunter Biden. And obviously, you know, I, I, want to, uh, I want to defend my good name and Senator Grassley's good name to get to the truth. But more importantly, I think the American people deserve the truth. And I'll absolutely be dedicated to using that chairmanship to uncover the truth. I mean, I think this is potentially a monumental story, Senator. And I know it's being dissed by the... Uh, you know, Washington Post, and New York Times, but, um, you know, they're they're just always wrong and they're corrupt themselves. There's uh, under somehow in the you know, and again, you're a former businessman, somehow in the payments systems coming from these various Chinese and Russian and Ukrainian ventures that Hunter Biden was involved with. There has to be payments to Joe Biden. I'm sorry. And that Bobolinsky phrase, 10 percent for the big guy. That's a haunting phrase. That's going to go down in history. The question is, can we track it? And usually with money, you can. You usually can, somehow or other. Well, when you've got, if you have an honest justice department, I think they surely could track it. Now, if it's down the Cayman Islands, it might be a little bit difficult to track it to its destination. But I think the fact that even with the modified limited hangout of the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, that acknowledgement, I think, helps put public pressure to, I think, give Congress more power at uncovering this. And again, I will if I'm there, I will be there and I will be dedicated to uncovering the truth. Terrific stuff. Well, you're all going to win because we're all going to help you win. That was Senator Ron Johnson, folks. Senator Johnson, by the way, will be on the Cudlow Show, Fox Business Network on Monday evening. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick commercial break because they tell me that I have to. And on the other side of the break is the distinguished historian Victor Davis Hanson. We're going to talk about our culture or the lack thereof. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Join us during the week. Fox Business News. The name of the show is Kudlow. Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. A lot of fun. Anyway, we're going to welcome back to the show Victor Davis Hansen, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, New York Times bestselling author. He's a columnist, commentator. And he's the author of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Indeed, they are. First of all, Victor, it's been a while. Long time no see. Good to hear you, Larry. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Victor, there's two things I want to talk to you about. One of them's Walt Disney, and the other one's the concept of equity uh, in the federal budget <laughs> There was 100 references to something called equity. But let me start with the Disney story, okay? Um, In our culture, modern-day culture, five-year-olds in school have to discuss sex and gender and probably critical race theory as well. But this uh, battle between Governor DeSantis and the Walt Disney people, I mean, first of all, why do five-year-olds have to talk about sex and gender in, in school, pre, preschool? Why is that? Well, I think in the university about 50 years ago came this idea that the nuclear family, man, woman, two or three children, were either ecologically unsound or they were oppressive or they promoted capitalism. But there was an idea that the alternate to that uh, was more being gay or bisexual or perennially singular, sing, single or not having children. And part of that theory and ideology says that you've got to reach children to deprogram them when they're five, six, seven. Otherwise, the wider culture will process them in on, you know, on the highway to getting married and having children, owning a home. And they don't want that, this small minority of leftists who are very influential, Larry. They control academia, corporate boardroom, Wall Street, um, entertainment, Hollywood, Silicon Valley. Well, why does a company like Disney's big company, obviously, yeah, why do they feel compelled to take positions on controversial social issues? I mean, you know, Milton Friedman used to teach us, the late Milton Friedman, the great Milton Friedman, that companies were in business to make profits for their shareholders, for their investors. But that seems to have gone out the window now. I think there's two reasons. One is they're amoral. I don't mean immoral. They're amoral. They don't have any concern with morality. And by that I mean if right now – there was a poll that said 99% or 70% and, there, and the overwhelming Americans don't want this, this, this such a sex education. And they did what the left did. They canceled, they deplatformed, they boycotted, they ostracized. And Disney's market share went down. If there was a conservative, they would flip in a minute because they don't believe in anything. The second is with globalization, when these international companies no longer had a 330 million person market in the United States, but potentially a 7 billion. And I'm preaching to someone who knows it far better than I, the level of profit tiering and profit and prosperity is just incomprehensible 40 years. So these people have so much money 
and uh, they're immune. They're immune for in some degree from short-term market ups and downs in a way that their predecessors weren't. But mostly the right fields. Well, majority of Americans are ordinary guys or traditionalists. We don't really pay any attention to this stuff. And what they don't realize, the 10 or 20 percent that pushes this, they have all the levers of influence. They boycott, as I said. They have entertainment. They control the NFL. They control the Oscars, the Tonys, K through 12, the universities. And the right, I think, misjudges that. They think, well, they don't have a majority of people, so they'll never get their agenda. But they do get their agenda by the manipulation of communications and imagery and um, the internet, and they can make a, a kind of a shame culture, and they've shamed Disney and saying, you know what, if you don't do this, we're going to do this, this, this. There's also a social component. The CEOs and the top echelons of these company they gravitate in the same circles. They're fish that swim in the same waters as these media people and university professors and bicoastal elites, and a lot of them are like Supreme Court justices. They start out conservative, and they see that the 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 way to be is to be left wing and that gives you social and cultural acceptance so it's it's complicated but that it's you're right it's hard to explain otherwise why they would go against the majority of Americans but they will continue to do it unless the majority say you're going to lose money doing this big but, money in. but coming back by the way they may lose money i mean by the way for what whatever reason uh the stock market in the last year or so, is up about forty percent, and the Disney stock is down twenty five percent. So it's it looks like the stock's getting hurt. But just coming back to your earlier point, Victor Davis Hasson, um, this seems to me this isn't so much about equal rights for different kinds of folks. They want to destroy the traditional nuclear family. They do, absolutely, and they feel that and every they feel ecologically that the planet cannot support. A family of four. They feel that the demography, uh, the white male Christian heterosexual paradigm has been exploitive and you have to have alternates to it by attacking it. Um, and they feel in this prosperous world that since they don't believe in God and they don't believe in transcendence, they feel this is the only thing you got, so you might as well enjoy it, enjoy it, enjoy it, yeah. and gratify the appetites. And kids, dirty diapers, old people living in your home, you know, the old three-generational family where grandma helped with uh, your small – that's out the window because it's just a drag on your time. You could be out having cappuccino on a Sunday morning. You could go to Florence, <laughs> but why stay home with a bunch of dirty diapers? Yeah. What do you I think? don't believe about passing on the culture to a new generation. What do you think about Ron DeSantis? He's fighting this thing tooth and nail. Seems like he's doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I think what he's trying to do, I don't know if he's going to run for office, but he seems that the traditional critique of the Trump rival was, well, a lot of people are going to emulate the MAGA agenda, but they don't have the fire in the belly and the courage to take take, take institutions on like Trump did. So DeSantis, I think, is signaling to people, not that he's not genuine, I think he's sincerely doing this, but he's also carving out a niche and said, I'm your MAGA guy, I have the same agenda, but like Trump, I'm going to hit these people head on in a way maybe Pompeo or Cotton or the other people haven't quite done that yet. Mm -hmm. So he's creating a distinct identity. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, hitting back. Um, Victor, <clears throat> i got about a minute and a half left. Um, yeah. 
in the budget, there's a hundred references to equity. And, you know, equity means this isn't equal opportunity at the starting no, line. This is equal all. results at the finish line. What do you make of this business? It's this new idea of the left that we call it equality of opportunity, but they say race and gender means that that's just a joke. You can't be equal so because of innate differences and in prejudice. So the government has to be strong enough to make you equal on the back end and a quality of result. And they can't say that because it won't resonate. So they picked up this word equity. And what the irony, just to finish, Larry, is that we were liberty and freedom. That was the models of the revolution. And the French Revolution was not. Mm. It was fraternity and egalitarianism or forced equality. And how odd that this equity is really a retrogressive uh the retrogressive support of the bloody French Revolution, because when you try to make people equal, when people are not born equal, rather than say equal opportunity, if you don't do as well as the next guy, we're going to have religion, everybody, and philanthropy to help people. But when you force people to be equal, you got to use a level of force that's incompatible with our our Constitution. You know, that's a really, Victor, a super important distinction between the French and American revolutions. That's a really great point. It's a great historical yeah. point, but it's it's also it's also really true. Well, Victor, I hope you'll come back, uh, maybe visit us on the TV show. Also, it's been a while, and I appreciate it very very much, Victor Davis Hanson, folks, uh, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk some more about the budget with my pal Russell Vote, who was budget director in the Trump administration. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're bringing in my pal, Russell Vogt, former OMB director, budget director in the Trump administration. He is now president, Center for Renewing America. Russ, good morning. Thanks for giving us a little bit of time. Appreciate it. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for having me. Yep. Always, always, buddy. Um... I want to talk about balanced budgets, all right? The, the, the Biden budget here, I mean, they're saying how much the deficit came down. Deficit comes down, but then it goes back up, and debt to GDP continues to rise. I guess it's 107% uh, publicly held debt as a share of gross domestic product. He's got 36 tax hikes, 11 directly aimed at fossil fuels. I just love that. Uh, so it's an anti-growth budget. But, Russ, you and I were talking this past week, and we're going to try to launch some kind of balanced budget exercise. Uh, you know, for benefit of viewers who are not always tuned into the details, could we ever get a balanced budget in your judgment? I do believe that we can, and we put forward uh, such a budget uh, all four years of the Trump administration that was both pro-growth, uh, and got a handle on our, our fiscal situation. And you need both. You you cannot balance the budget uh, without growth. And so you've got to be able to have tax policies that allow for freedom and opportunity and entrepreneurship. You've got to have pro-energy uh, policies that allow for an energy sector to, to thrive. And you got to have a deregulatory initiative as well that, that doesn't want to saddle you know ranchers and small businesses across the country. But you also have to uh, make t- some tough decisions when it comes to spending. And we had, uh, on our last budget, we had about a $4.5 trillion in savings 
that really compounded in the over not just in the first 10 years but in the second 10 years you know people would say well you know you didn't do anything on mandatory spending it's not true we had half of those cuts were reforms to welfare uh, things like a work requirement things to lower the cost of drug pricing uh, there was a lot of things that we were doing, but we, most importantly, what we were doing, which is not what this town has wanted to do, referring to D.C. and not New York, is that they have not wanted to tackle the discretionary spending that the country deals with every single year. And so that's your woke government, your woke bureaucracies that dramatically need to be scaled back and is the easiest to actually Cut. If you can't cut the Bob Dylan statute in Mozambique, you cannot have a conversation about <laughs> welfare reform. I'm sorry, you just can't. <laughs> I love that. By the way, your phrase, woke budget, which I have borrowed, I do attribute it to you, but it's exactly <laughs> what these guys are doing. It's a woke budget with 100 mentions of equity, uh, as well as their fatwa against uh, fossil fuels. But tell us a little bit more. Uh, so you can preserve Social Security, you can preserve Medicare, but there's a lot to be cut in the so-called discretionary areas, the non-mandatory areas. Can you can you give our viewers a couple of hints about that, our listeners rather? Sure. So, I mean, you, you, let's take Environmental Protection Agency. Most people think that's just clean air and clean water, which you and I, of course, would support. That doesn't need a 30% increase, and it, it actually needs to be reduced significantly back to uh, levels you know not seen in, in probably a decade or so. And the reason I say that is because it, you know what the bureaucrats are doing over there is they're doing criminal prosecutions against people, uh, ranchers uh, who are building ponds on their property to deal with wildfire or just to have livestock ponds for their kids. And we saw that with a guy named Joe Robertson, 77-year-old. Navy veteran who spent 18 years in his life, in, uh, in the last 18 months of his life at the end, uh, in prison because of the waters of the United States. Now, we, we changed that, but that's the mindset of the, the EPA bureaucrat. And you can find an example of that at everything from the Department of Education that's trying to put our CRT in our schools to the DOJ that's trying to treat our parents who are concerned at a school board meeting and use the, the powers of the federal government to say that they are domestic terrorists. And so mm. that's where a lot of this pushback, we need annual cuts to these bureaucracies. It will just so happen to also allow us to balance our books. And if it takes, you know, we did it in 15 years, uh, we could, if it, it takes 10 years, we can have a debate about how long it should take. I'd love to get in the bidding war with, with fiscal conservatives about how fast we could do it. Uh, but we got to have that fiscal goal. There's nothing that allows policymakers to have a better fiscal goal than balancing the budget. It's the only thing that the American people really understand as well. You know, Russ, it's just thinking about these discretionary spending items. So Congress just passed this semiconductor subsidy, you know, compete with China, blah, blah, blah. They want it to be more China than China, spend a lot of money, give Intel a lot of money. Basically, I think of it as the Intel bailout bill. Uh, I had uh, dinner with a leading, not Intel, but a CEO of another gigantic um, chip company, uh, a good one that doesn't want subsidies. And he was saying to me, 
There's $200 billion, $200 billion of private investment out there that is actually working. So we didn't really need this $250 billion because the private sector would do it anyway. Now, this thing passed, this abomination, bailouts, Intel, subsidies, and Russ, you know what? They'll probably build it up over time, right? It'll go to 300 and 400 and 500 billion dollars. No, no. I mean, these subsidies never go down. Uh, you know, and I think some of that's going to be authorized, and there'll be a fight annually as to how much we actually spend towards it. Um, but there's no question that they build. You know, these subsidies lead to. Uh, you know, they, they have their own compounding effect. Uh, in terms of the, the spending game, it's very hard. You know, your old boss, Ronald Reagan, said, you know, the closest thing to permanence is a federal program. Mm. Uh, and, and we see that constantly uh, in the world that we live in. So, you know, your basic point is, contrary to what the D.C. Swamp says, there are a number of areas that can be cut. And here's uh, – so totally I agree with you, and as a former OMB guy, I always supported you in the Oval Office meetings, you and, and Mick Mulvaney. But um, the idea is no one seems to talk anymore in either party. I, that's a little bit harsh, but mostly they don't talk about cutting spending. Okay, I don't hear that phrase very much at all. And I hate to say it, but both sides of the aisle. But, you know, in general, we passed this omnibus appropriations bill. Um, what happened? We needed we build up military spending. I'm all for that. Uh, but the deal was if we build up military, we got to build up domestic. So they did both. No one talks right. about cutting spending. What is up with that? Well, there's a couple of threads here, and I think you're absolutely right. And there has been this viewpoint, even by some some of the, 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 the budget cutters that are most famous, your Paul Ryans of the world, right. that if you don't touch entitlements, if you don't touch mandatory spending, and we touched it, we, we had reforms in those areas, that you're not really being serious. But the, the, the problem with that mentality is that you never start anywhere. And so politically – the idea that the American people are going to allow you to touch their most cherished programs when you have not shown that you can actually go after the bureaucracy that they hate and that you have a vote on on an annual basis, they're never going to listen to you. And I also believe that to the extent that you know you it's it's like a family then they decide over that they you know they look at their balance sheet and they say look we got to get a handle on this. Mm. The first thing they they deal with is their discretionary spending. They they deal with their out to eat budget. They deal with their shopping budget. They may over time reduce less to the kids' uh, college education fund, but that's a long time conversation where you got to start with the easy stuff before you can get to the hard stuff. Mm. We did both, but the American people are going to expect their political leaders to deal with the foreign aid, even if it's a small percentage of the budget that's needed to be fixed before they can touch other things that are a little bit more pressing to them. I mean, politically, Russ, is it useful, worthwhile, beneficial to talk about a balanced budget again? I I believe it is. You know, I've been at this for 20 years or so. Um, Everyone wants to have a different fiscal goal. That's the only one that's out there that the American people understand. Yeah, I think so. I think you change the language, you change the goals. 
as you said to me, the principle of a balanced budget is so important. Anyway, Russell Vogt, thanks very, very much. Much more to be revealed. Folks, quick break. General Keene is on the other side of the break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Still Larry Kudlow here. We welcome back to the show our mentor in all things foreign and military, General Jack Keene, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Uh, General Keene, I know you're busy. I saw you on uh, Fox News earlier this morning, but thank you for helping us out. You know, um, General, you told you warned me. This was several weeks ago, uh, not to draw any conclusions from rumors emanating from so-called peace talks of what Zelensky, President Zelensky, would or would not agree to. It's very interesting. You said that, and the reason I raise that again is not only were you right. But I was terribly interested in his interview last night with Brett Baer on Fox News. Brett Baer is a very good newsman. And I want to go through some of the things that I think Zelensky said. Get your take on it. But I'll begin with this. Uh, in, in response to a question, um, what do you hope to get out of this? Zelensky told Brett Baer, victory is the only acceptable outcome. Victory is the only acceptable outcome. And General Keeney went on to say that we Ukrainians um, will not trade our territory or our sovereignty for something else. What do you make of that, sir? Yeah, I, I absolutely believe right from the outset that's always been his objective. I think early on people didn't take him too seriously because we all thought that the Russians were going to be a considerable overmatch uh, for him. But he, he has really seized on the moment, and he's got some very good generals that work for him as well. Because where we are right now is that the, the Russians know full well that their objective to take the capital, Kiev, and the other major cities in the north has failed miserably. And that campaign in the north, they are retrograding some of those troops because they are badly damaged, and those organizations are somewhat combat ineffective. Not all of them, but some of them. They're going to refit and reconstitute. Remains to be seen if they take if they reposition them someplace else. But given the damage that's been done to them, it's likely that that they would probably be because they're degraded. They would likely not be that decisive, even if they moved them into the eastern campaign. The only place where the Russians are now attacking is in the Donbass region, where the two republics are, mm. and the Ukrainians are, are, are defending well, and obviously in. Mariupol. That is it. So what is going on in Zelensky's mind now and what he envisioned at the outset, but we certainly didn't give him the credit that was due, is he wants to go on the offense and really begin to take sizable amount of territory back. He has done some limited counterattacks around Kiev, Kherson, and Kharkiv and has had some success, but he wants to do more. And to achieve that victory he's talking about, to crush the Russians and to push them out of the country. Now, listen, this is not a given. Uh, this is an opportunity that he has. And there's a chance that he could be successful. But listen, I'm never betting against Zelensky and, uh, and, and his people. Uh, and this is why he's, there's a little tug of war going on with the administration, Larry, 
because he's changed now. He wants the javelins and the stingers and the small arms and the rest of that to keep coming. But to do an offensive campaign that has some consequence to it, he's asking for more advanced weapon systems, long range, long and mid-range air defense systems, combat aircraft, yes, the MiGs, tanks, uh, all the armored vehicles, counter-battery radar, all to be successful in that kind of a campaign. So that's his mindset. And give him a lot of credit for it. And I believe he's going to try to do the best he can to put together what in the military we call a counteroffensive campaign because the Russians, at least in the north, are back on their heels. And he knows full well that he can take advantage of them as they're trying to refit and, and, and reconstitute. So, yeah, he's seeking that uh, victory. And, I, and I've always questioned you know, whether the administration is on the same page with him. Uh, in achieving that victory, or, or are they more inclined, which I think they are, to want to take get a deal as soon as possible, even if that deal may be harmful to the Ukrainians? And the reason is because they don't want – I don't think they want Russia to be crushed and driven out of the country out of fear of what Putin would do in reaction to something like that, that he would escalate. And I think the administration has a lot of concern and possibly fear in dealing with that. But yes, let's applaud Zelensky in terms of, of, of what he's trying to achieve. And certainly if he's able to take a lot more territory away from the Russians and diminish their presence considerably, but he's not able to get them all out of the country. When it does come to negotiations, Larry, he'll be in a, a, in a much better place, mm. uh, you know, as a result of it. Well, I've always suspected that the administration wants the standoff scenario, not the victory scenario, the Ukrainian victory scenario. Um, me, in my own way, my certainly in my heart, but also in my mind, I want Russia to be defeated. I want Ukraine to win, period, full stop. But you mentioned, uh, and Zelensky did in the Brett Baer interview, mentioned uh, make a plea for more advanced weapons, what do we know? Will the administration deliver these weapons? Because, you know, John, we still haven't. I mean, I haven't heard anybody, uh, either Defense Department or State Department or the president himself, sign off on those uh, Soviet MiGs in Poland or the S-300s in Slovakia uh, or even the um, advanced tanks. I haven't heard him say any of that. Yeah, uh, well, Jan Saki yesterday mentioned that there they are getting some tanks. And listen, these advanced weapon systems, this is much more difficult now. For obvi- Obviously, these, these weapons are, are, and uh, capabilities are much more sophisticated. They're more challenging to move around. You've got to go. We don't have a lot of that uh, in terms of what they want. We have to go to the former Soviet republics to try to get it. I'm not suggesting there's not challenges here, but there's huge opportunity here. And and the thing that has frustrated me for weeks is that from the president on down, we have never, ever committed to Zelensky's goal of victory. Mm. We don't use those words. And and if we're not using those words, then what's behind that? Uh, and and I, I totally agree with you. Uh, they would take a deal uh, in the near term uh, as opposed to sharing in Zelensky's uh, goal to drive the Russians out because of what the outcome of that could, could mean. Yeah. And it, this will be hard to get all this equipment, but it's, it's doable, but you have to have the passion 
to want to do it and energize the bureaucracy to make it happen. And we'll see if the administration comes through here. But Zelensky, as late as that interview, you heard him expressing his frustration that he doesn't have those weapon systems yet that he wants. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get him those systems and also have a sense of urgency in, in, in getting them into his hands. I don't see what the big deal – I still don't see what the big deal is about these Russian MiGs and the, and the S-300 stuff. I mean, gee whiz, I think that should have been done weeks ago. And the thing is, so I'm <laughs> in my own mind, I'm saying Zelensky or the Ukrainians have the Russians on the run. I, I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But they sure have repelled them. I mean, the story is completely different today than it was a month ago when this, or five weeks ago, six weeks ago, when this Russian invasion started. And, you know, the mark, look, I served in the prior administration for three years. Uh, I know I'm an economics guy, but I did sit on the National Security Council. You know, the the trick here, General Keene, as you well know, I mean, you know, you were on the chiefs. You have to adjust. When, when when the story changes, you got to change. You have to adjust. You get the intel, the new information. I don't think we've. Ad- I don't think our gangs adjusted to this new reality no, I, on the I, ground. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the reality was this was only going to last three or five days. That's what our U.S. intelligence services told the Pentagon and told uh, President Biden and the White House what was what was going to happen, and obviously. That was a flawed information for sure. And this thing has turned around uh, somewhat to the Ukrainians' favor. And there's a huge opportunity here operationally. And you've got to take advantage of that opportunity in war. Hmm. It may not come again. The Russians are back on their heels. They're not running away, but they, they've been severely damaged. And they're vulnerable and, and <clears throat> vulnerable to an offensive campaign to to really push them back. And we've had some limited success in doing all of that. And and that's, that's the concern I have that the United States and NATO are not there with Zelensky and his, and the opportunity that's here operationally to take advantage of it and get all in and support them. I mean, look at the polls should have given them the airplanes. I think somebody in the Russian hierarchy likely called the president of or one of the foreign minister in Poland said, you do that, you're going to force us to act. And, and they, they should have hung up the phone and tell them, go to hell, and mm. given them the damn airplanes. That mm. should have been the answer. Mm. Uh, and then they came up with the lame idea, because they didn't want to have, they, didn't want to, they wanted to wash their hands of it. The Poles said, well, look, it, we'll give them to the Americans on a NATO base and let them give them uh, to, the, uh, to the Ukrainians, because it's not us. Well, Either we should have forced the Poles to do it by sweetening the deal a little bit for them, or we just should have had the Ukrainians come over to the NATO base and pick up the airplanes. Yeah. But yeah. What, why, what, was, what was the reason we didn't do that? It goes back to my basic premise that the administration from the beginning, before the war started and right to, while the war is being executed, is <clears> – <throat> unduly influenced by provoking Putin into adverse action. Yeah. And they, I believe the Russians threatened the United States and NATO. If you give the Ukrainians airplanes from a NATO base, 
you're going to force us to escalate. Mm. And again, we should have hung up the phone mm. and gave the Ukrainians the airplanes. General King, can, that, can I can I take a quick commercial break? Come right back with you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I would be terrific because I want to continue this, and I want to also talk about. Um, what Zelensky said about NATO and also Russian finances are doing better, not worse, six weeks into this. Anyway, we're talking to General Jack Keane. I'm Larry Kudlow. Quick commercial break. Come right back after that. Please stay with us, folks. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to General Jack Keane, chairman of the uh, former, sorry, for, former retired uh, four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General Keane, I just want to jump in. This is a very interesting uh, article came out yesterday from Bloomberg. Okay, Bloomberg Economy. I'll just read you this first graph. For all the hardships visited on consumers at home and the financial chokehold put on the government from abroad, Bloomberg Economics expects Russia will earn nearly $321 billion from energy exports this year, an increase of more than a third from 2021. It's also on track for a record current account surplus, meaning more exports than imports. Uh, that may reach $240 billion. I mean, you know, we never sanctioned the energy companies. We never sanctioned the energy bank lenders. We never put on secondary banks. That, you, know, you and I have talked about this sporadically. Um, they act, I mean, the Russian ruble has recovered. It's up 40% from the lows. It's pretty much, the currency is pretty much back to where it was at the beginning of the invasion. We have not done our job, General Keene. That's my take. We, the Ukrainians, the brave Ukrainians, and the gritty, the gritty Ukrainians are doing their job. I don't think the U.S. and NATO have done our job, done its job, because we have not stopped financing the Russian war machine. We haven't. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, President Zelensky said as much yesterday that uh, you know he thinks there's so much more that can be done with the sanctions. And, and, and this, I think, was Putin's mindset from the outset uh, when we were threatening sanctions. Of course, we didn't even impose them as a result of him showing up on Ukraine's border with 150,000 troops. We waited until after the invasion. But nonetheless, I think Putin always realized that at the end of the day, the thing that he is going to be able to count on is that uh, his oil and his gas is going to be able to flow. The Europeans are going to be the major consumers of it. And, and he's going to reap the financial benefits of that, despite the war in Ukraine, that the Europeans will not back off and, and cut off the supply of oil and, oil and gas because of the hardships it would cause to their people and to the economy. He bet on that, and, and he won that bet. He did. And that's, a, that's just a fact. And, and, he, and, you know, he's been dismissive of sanctions in the past. Not, not that sanctions don't impact them and have had, have had adverse effects. I think in 2014, he would admit he went into a recession as a result of the sanctions. But he believes, you know, at the end of the day, he can weather the storm. And he knows that we're heading uh, for some kind of uh, settlement uh, in Ukraine, political settlement, that he believes will be favorable to him if his military is able to achieve more than what it has. And then he believes at that point the sanctions are going to come off anyway. Mm. So, I mean, that. So I, I don't think the sanctions— 
pose to him a major threat or impediment. But if we did what you've been saying since day one, mm. if we stop the oil and gas and cut that off, then then we really have a full stop inside of Russia economically. Yep. And we haven't done it. And we let the banking system still operate. Even though we sanctioned a lot of Russian banks, we didn't sanction the energy banks. We didn't sanction the very biggest bank in Russia. I mean, the U.S. Treasury has permitted American banks to facilitate the payment of interest on the debt for their sovereign bonds. Okay, no default. And by the way, default would be very harmful to Russia. Default would not be harmful to the world banking system because it's not there. They're not, it's not big enough. People talk about 2008. Nonsense. There's nothing remote about a meltdown just because of Russian bonds. What it would have done is just killed Putin, and Putin has obsessed about that. Anyway, before I lose you, I want to talk about another thing Zelensky said. He told Brett Baer that he wants to enter NATO, and he says, and this is such interesting uh, logic, General, that he thinks if Ukraine were in NATO, it would make NATO stronger. And I'm interested in your view on that one because I kind of agree. Yeah, well, I would certainly agree with that. Uh, There's no doubt about it. What his military has been able to do is really quite extraordinary. And it's better than many of the militaries that are in NATO uh, right now that really don't have anywhere near the capacity that uh, that he has the the most capable military certainly in NATO is the United States. The second one is actually Turkey, followed by France and Britain, and Germany's way down uh, towards the towards the bottom. But the chancellor has turned that program around and is uh, actually doubling uh, their defenses. But yes, that certainly would be the case. I don't think it's achievable because the NATO members, uh, from the very beginning when George Bush proposed it in 2008, that Georgia and and Ukraine come into NATO, Germany and France immediately objected, and that objection has been there uh, ever since. There's likely more of more other countries that are objecting to it, largely because of the intimidation of Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean that what that's what this has been all about, all of these years from 2008 to the to the present, and that's really what we're one of the things we're fighting over. I mean, really, Russia wants to own Ukraine. That is the ultimate objective here, for for sure. I don't see that happening where uh, Ukraine will eventually become become a part of NATO. Well, he did say... Not not while Putin is in in charge in Russia, anyway. Yes, well, Zelensky did say also, I interpreted it as his second choice, that he wanted some kind of security agreement with NATO. Now, of course, once upon a time, we had these Budapest agreements back in, I guess, 1994. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. And Russia was a signatory to that to protect the sovereignty of Ukraine. But, of course, Putin's broken that. But uh, Zelensky said at at least he wanted a security agreement uh, with the U.S. and the Western countries. Yeah. See, he's saying two things, and and I don't think both of them are achievable. He said he— He's willing to accept neutrality, which was one of the things that Russia would want from Ukraine as a concession. But he also wants to have military alliances with other countries to include the United States. You know, we have a, an alliance with Japan, as an example, to defend them, just 
It's a bilateral alliance. We have an alliance with South Korea to defend them, another bilateral alliance. So that is what he's talking about. But you can't be you can't be a neutral country and then also have military alliances with with other countries. Hmm. So I, I, I don't see how he can get to both places at, at the same time. And that that would probably get clarified a little bit more as when when and if negotiations get started. Hmm. Um, Serious negotiations. Last one. Um, did Ukrainian bomb that uh, oil depot in Russia, is, in your judgment? And is this the beginning of a, a really, um, well, you know, this counteroffensive you talked about earlier? Well, I, I, I suspect they did. I mean, in the interview, uh, he didn't confirm it or deny it. Mm. But he did point out, which gives credence to the fact that they did, he did point out that it was a place where missiles have been fired from, mm. although what was hit was an oil de- depot. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm calculating that he did, but it, it's not decisive. I, it, it's not going to change the war. I think it was a statement being made that they can reach out and do damage inside of, inside of Russia. But he's not going to conduct... Uh, any kind of cross-border invasion into Russia with his ground forces. He's got all he can handle with the Russians that are inside of Ukraine and trying to defeat them and push them out. That'll be his focus. Mm. Well, we will see. We will see what happens next. General Jack Keane, you've been wonderful, as always, sir. All of our listeners, just like our viewers on the Fox Business Show, you've been terrific, and we'll see you next week for more updates. Folks, we're going to take a break and swing over and start doing some economic and stock market work on the other side. I mean, you know, you listen you listen to what John Keane is saying, and really, really my takeaway, really my takeaway is it's high time the Biden administration decided that Ukraine can defend itself, they can be a sovereign country, We don't have to concede it to Russia. We don't have to have a standoff. You know, we have plenty of weapons to help them out with. We should help Zelensky. The guy's a world hero. Putin is a war criminal and a crook. I mean, really, I don't think the Biden administration has done its job. I do not. And I think that's a tragedy. But the great news is... The Ukrainians are a tough lot, and it sure seems like they want freedom. Anyway, we'll take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. Lots of stock market work and jobs. Jobs are up big on the Friday report. We will be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. The Larry Kudlow Show. Join us during the week, Fox Business News. The name of the show is Cudlow, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And we've got a lot of work to do here. A lot big week for economic releases, including yesterday's uh, very, very good jobs report. It's interesting. People keep telling me the flattening of the yield curve is going to bring us into recession. But we generated... 431,000 non-farm payrolls plus 95,000 revisions from the two prior months. So that's 526,000. The unemployment rate is down to 3.6%. 
Household employment was up 736,000. Participation rates went up. And if you calculate it right, now we'll get our guest's take on this, but people keep telling me wages, wages are being eaten up by inflation, but not entirely. All right, average hourly earnings times hours worked, which is how you're supposed to do this, the last 12 months are up 12.3% in nominal terms. So, yeah, we have an 8% inflation rate, which is bad. Gasoline prices, bad. Food prices, bad. But wages are very, very strong. And we had a decent ISM manufacturing report. The basic inflation rate is now running about 6.4%, according to the personal income report for February. And the JOLTS report was interesting, too. We had... I can't figure this out. We had over 11 million job openings, and there's slightly more than 6 million people unemployed. So we need a whole lot of new workers to fill those job openings. So I don't know whether that's going to ever happen in my lifetime, but it's a very interesting number. Stock markets were basically flat for the week, uh, up slightly yesterday. Anyway, with all that, we bring in Nancy Tangler, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments which has a five-star Morningstar rating. And Stephanie Link is the chief investment strategist, Hightower Advisors, head of investment solutions. So, ladies, thank you for coming on. It's great to have you again. I begin with you, Stephanie Link. Uh, I keep hearing talk about a recession, and I know there's an inflation problem. I know there were 36 tax hikes in Biden's budget. I don't think it's going to go through. I know he's running a jihad and a fatwa against fossil fuel companies. I know he's wasting our strategic petroleum reserve, wasting it away for nothing but political price fixing. But, 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 I think the economy is holding up. What do you think? Yeah, and and it's great to be here with you and Nancy. Um, I I think uh, clearly we're going to slow this year. I think as a base case from last year into this year, we expected the economy to slow just because we're not going to have the fiscal and monetary stimulus that we had over the last, by the way, two years. And as that slows, certainly momentum slows in the economy, but I don't see a recession, especially not this year. We'll have to see how things play out in 2023. But I think there's just too much momentum still in the economy because of all of those programs that were put in place. And I look at the consumer, as you know, because it is 70 percent of the U.S. GDP and the consumer certainly is feeling it in terms of inflation. But the, sa- but the savings rate, they still have, they're still $2.7 trillion in excess <clears throat> excess savings. Retail sales are 25% better than they were pre-pandemic. And of course, jobs are plentiful. And as you mentioned, the JOLTS number is just, I mean, at near record highs and just an incredible number at 11.2 million. And last month was revised higher. And all of this is leading to higher wages. So at least the consumer is seeing higher wages. If they want a job, they can get a job and they get, they're getting paid for it higher than when they used to. Um, but so that's all good. I think manufacturing is still um, reeling from the supply chain issues, but inventories are still low uh, by historical measures. And so I think the, they think we're in OK shape this year. But of course, we have to appreciate the, the flattening of the of the yield curve and and the history that it brings. And there's no question about it that we are going to slow. Does it, does it slow into a recession or does it not? Uh, I think this year is going to be, given all these concerns and put more on top of that, 
we're going to be in this choppy, volatile trading range all year. Well, there you have it. Right there's a mouthful. <laughs> Thank you, Steph. Yeah. That's awfully good. <laughs> Nancy, um, what, I just this, this doesn't necessarily affect uh, investment strategy directly, but we have a five million person gap between job openings and unemployed. Openings are 11 million plus. They're only about 6 million unemployed. So if everyone went back to work, you'd still have, you'd still be 5 million short. I can't quite figure that out because I've never seen a situation like that before. And, you know, I've been doing this stuff for two and a half centuries. What do you make of that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't think it would make for very good good radio if I just said I agree with everything that Stephanie just said. (laughs) 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 I do. Oh, shucks. Go ahead. Whatever. Um, <laughs> Stephanie's really, she's, she's right. really smart. The theology, you're both really yes. smart. You're both really <laughs> smart. That's why I'm asking these impossible questions. Well, it, it is a conundrum. I mean, I think it does bode well for uh, technology CapEx spend because that is one of the solutions. Um, you go to a Walmart in, in where I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there's robots on every aisle, um, either checking the shelves or uh, cleaning you know, the floors. So I do think that technology will bail us out somewhat on this, but I'm in complete agreement that, yes, we, we are slowing and we knew we were going to slow. It's kind of just the math. But but recession, I don't think so. You know, you look at the the uh, we I look at the three month two year uh, spread in the yield curve, and that's actually steepened since Fed Chair Powell uh, announced the twenty five basis point increase. So I, I think that you have to also take into account that the Fed's been in there, you know, sort of distorting the middle of the curve. And and once I, I think it was Esther George that was quoted as saying, if they weren't in the mix, the tenure would be at three and a half percent, which would argue that even the the two year tenure would would be still um, steepening. So I I do think that is a problem in terms of the jobs. The jolts number is is uh, is startling, and I thought the jobs report also was very good with with you know, um, increased participation rate, but we need to see a lot more people participate. And, and that is going to be the difficulty, I, I think, in, get, in getting a, a really strong economy um, coming out the other side of the slowdown. You know, Nancy, that's an important point, your yield curve point. Um, people are looking at twos to tens, but let me just, the original yield curve models of the future economy from the New York Fed and I think there was an updated one from the San Francisco Fed. It's not the twos to tens that predicts. It's the three-month bill versus the 10-year. That was the original model, and it was a very good model. I can never remember the name of the guy who did that model. Uh, he left the New York Fed to teach at uh, RPI, Rensselaer, Rensselaer Poly, um, which is in Rhode Island, if I'm not mistaken. I hope I get that right. don't mean to offend anybody. But – that spread is pretty wide. I mean, yeah, that's in, yeah, it in, is steepened right? as well. In round numbers, you know, it's it's fifty basis points versus two hundred and fifty basis points. So that's mm-hmm. you know, historically and that that says there ain't no recession in sight. Period. Full yeah. stop. That's what that model says. Yeah. And I mean we don't you know, we know that the PMIs are rolling over, of course, and, and that will you know, also equate with earnings revisions to the downside. Um, but there's still places to be invested in that environment. And I think um, 
you know, they're rolling over, but they're rolling over from very high levels. So we've, we've got a ways to go before I think we even have to worry about recession, if at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an inflationary boom is what I think. The ISM manufacturing was you know, 57.1, so that was down from 58.6. That's mm-hmm. a pretty historically high level. I mean, really. Yeah. Now, prices paid were 87. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, in, in fl- right. I mean, that's breathtaking. And I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, Stephanie, is inflation peaked really? Yeah, I know everyone wants to talk about inflation peaking, and may, maybe it has. I, I, I don't know. I do look at the IS, within the ISM, the new orders number were a little bit troubling. It went from 61.7 mm-hmm. to 53.8, right? So that's the, that was like the, the negative piece of, of the ISM. But I agree with Nancy. I mean, we're still in expansion. Um, and in terms of inflation, Larry, you know, I mean, commodities certainly could roll over. We don't know what's going to happen with the war. Uh, supply chains could eventually get fixed. And, oh, by the way, we heard from yet another CEO this past week from Micron who said not until 2023 do supply chains get fixed. But let's just say he's wrong. And let's just say second half of this year we get supply chain fixed. That certainly will help on the inflationary front. But I look at wages and I look at rent. And we just talked about the wage number being 5.6 percent year over year annualized. That's a good number for the consumer. It's a tough one for, uh, for corporate America. <clears throat> and uh, and the other issue was on the rent side. And we know that home prices lead rents by about 12 months. So home prices, we got the numbers this week from Kay Schiller, 19.1% in the country, up as an average. We know that there are a lot of homes that are up even more than that in certain cities, certain states. So my point being, rents are on the rise, and I think they're going to head higher throughout this year. And those two pieces of inflation, wages and rents, are much more sticky. So are we going to see 8% inflation uh, going forward? I doubt it in terms of the CPI. I doubt it. Um, but I don't think we're going to go back to 2 or 3%. So I think we're going to stay elevated. You, wait, you doubt it because you think it's going to 10 Well, I think we're going to stay high. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think we're going to stay high. Let's wait a, just say wait that. a second. Let me just on this particular point. Kay Schiller was 19%, all right? <laughs> Call call 20%. Round numbers are on radio. Good enough for radio work. Plus 20. (laughs) Now, the Fed is still buying mortgage-backed bonds. Mm -hmm. Now, that has to be, pardon my French, but that's one of the stupidest goddamn things I've ever heard. I mean, really. You you say the stimulus is coming down. Where is the stimulus coming down? Monetary base is still growing like a son of a gun. M2 is still growing. Deficit finance is still growing. You know, we haven't talked about Biden's fabulous budget. He can't make up his mind. On the one hand, uh, he's running gigantic deficits as far as the eye can see. But on the other hand, he wants 36 tax hikes. So the former stimulates and the latter represses. I mean, I don't get any of that. But really, well, it's it's going to it's going to come down from elevated levels that we you know, come on. We saw if you look at the fiscal and monetary policies at one point that were put in place a year and a half ago, two years ago, they were put in place. But if you think about where it got to, it was as much as 60 percent of U.S. GDP. That's huge. Right. So I think that those numbers are going to come down. We're still going to have stimulus. And that was the whole reason why I don't think we're going into a recession and why I said the economy does still have so much momentum to it. And and uh, and people just think that it's going to go that that policies are going to go to zero. They're not going to go to zero, but they're just, just, they're just not going to be at the levels that I, I think we have. seen. Well, I would that, just that I, I got to take a quick break, but I would just invoke Milton Friedman. Monetary <laughs> lags are long and variable. 
That's mm-hmm. all I'll say. We have Nancy Tangler, Tangler Investments. We have Stephanie Link from Hightower Advisors and Investment Solutions. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to apply all of this to some phenomenal stock market wisdom on the other side of the break. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and stocks and economics and inflation and all the rest of it. Nancy Tangler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Lafford Tangler Investments, which is a five-star Morningstar rating. And Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist, Hightower Investments, Head of Investment Solutions. Um, Kids, I want to get to the stock market implications of this, but I just want to – it's one little interesting thing here. Um, The job numbers, uh, you know, uh, President Biden bragging he created, quote-unquote, created uh, 7 million jobs or 8 million jobs. I don't know what he said yesterday. Um, But it's interesting. I saw this someplace this morning. In February 2020, before the pandemic, um, civilian employment – was 152.5 million. And then in 2020, that crashed when the pandemic shut everything down and it dropped to 130.5 million. So you lost 22 million people. Uh, As of this March number we got, civilian employment is 150.9. So it's just interesting to me, we are still a couple million jobs lower than we were at the pre-pandemic peak. Just saying that the jobs are coming back, and that's good. I'm all for it. I want people to work, and I want them to get paid. Uh, But actually, we're still below where we were. Now, whether that has anything to do with that, you know, spread between job openings and unemployed, I don't know. I'm just sort of pointing that out, Nancy Tangler. I mean, just – just interesting to me that it, it ain't quite as great as it might first look. That's all I'm saying. Right. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think maybe what um, President Biden can take credit for is um, getting people back to work by stop pay, by stopping paying them supplemental benefits. I, I think that has a good deal to do with why the participation rate is starting to creep up. That and inflation is why people some people who had sort of permanently left the, the workforce are, are coming back in. And I, I think, you know, from, from the standpoint, the question you asked last, last segment is, is really an important one. How, how do we bridge the gap uh, from, from the 2 million low, less number of people working, right? And I think one of the ways is technology, but the other way is we just need to encourage people and incent people to get back to work because it's mm. going to be a problem. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm giving credit for ending the unemployment benefits, although right. he, he opposed <laughs> that, but... He, I can't give him credit for his attempt at a $5 trillion spending package, B, as, right. a.k.a. BBB, a.k.a. Save America, Kill the Bill. 
But I digress. I, Stephanie Link, how can we make some money in the stock market or any place else? You tell me. It, it, and by the way, it's interesting just to just to um, highlight what you guys are talking about. Services part of the economy is not back, right? They they're just starting to see a recovery. Oh. It was a very encouraging. ADP the ADP report showed 377,000 jobs in last month in payrolls in the services component. And that is very encouraging, but it's certainly just the beginning. And so that's why I think you have this, uh, this difference between the pre-pandemic and then where we are now. And of course, the unemployment rate was 3.1% pre-pandemic, mm. right? And it was, it's uh, it's 3.6% now. So we have a ways to go, but we're definitely making pro- progress. Stephanie, so on, no, it, hang yeah. on one second, just to follow that. How um, services coming back? So was it restaurants, hospitality mainly, or what? And, yeah, so and, it's tra- yeah, travel, travel. restaurants, uh, and and um, you know cruises, and yes, the, a, whole, a whole host of things. And the wages, and, fact, and the wages, and, and, well, the- and the wages. Well, and it's interesting, Larry. Last month, you, as you will recall, and Nancy, you too, um, most likely, we saw wages come in at five point one percent year over year, and that was a surprise. That was a disappointment. We had thought it was going to be five point five percent. That was la- that's, uh, two months ago, not this past month, two months ago. And the reason it was weak was because you did see the services part of the economy see a rebound. And those are lower paying jobs Mm -hmm. versus technology and utility workers. So it didn't happen this past month because we did see a nice kind of more a a better balance. But I think it's going to be the services. That's a theme for 2022. Are you asking about ideas? It's absolutely a big theme for me in terms of the reopen kinds of names. Mm -hmm. And again, that is. Travel, uh, leisure, hospitality, gaming stocks, cruises. If you want to go airlines, I don't invest in airlines. They're too volatile for me, but that would also be certainly a place to to be investing. And then the one other thing I would just highlight, sort of interesting that we've seen year to date, what has worked and what hasn't. So beginning of the year, at some one point in the middle of the first quarter, we saw a value, the Russell 1000 value, outperform the Russell 1000 growth by 1,200 basis points. In the last two and a half weeks, we have actually seen that growth is outperforming value by two, uh, uh, by 700 basis points. So you're seeing kind of a reversion of the, of the mean in the growth segment of the market. This is the way I, I kind of summarize it. This is a year where you want to have better balance. You want to have a barbell between value and growth, between reopen and defensive. And if you notice, the new high lists as of late have been utilities and defensive names. Nancy, what do you? How can you make us a fortune? <laughs> I got a, uh, well, I got a minute I, left. I, okay, I think you really do want to focus on reliable growers at this stage in the cycle. So companies that um, will continue to be to grow valuations somewhat less important though. Like Steph, I'm I'm a valuation driven kind of person, um, but in this environment, you want to own the companies that are growing their dividends, and that there have been a significant and robust number of uh, dividend increases announced, and in the high double digits. Uh, 20, 30 percent. The energy companies are paying specials all over the place. So we're focused in two areas where you have the most productive companies, that's technology and energy, and then in the service area, as Stephanie described. All right. You two are really smart. (laughs) Really smart. Thank you. Nancy Tangler and Stephanie Link. I'm Cudlow. Money and politics. Liz Peek can see more on the other side of the break. Boom, boom, boom. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us, please, during the week. Fox Business News, 
Name of the show is Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. Now, we do some money and politics. We have Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist, New York Sun columnist, too. I just saw that. Great article. And Steve Moore, Vice President of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and a book with the unlikely title, Govzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. All right. That there's 36 tax hikes, Mr. Moore. Nice going. Anyway, Liz, I want to tackle your article in The Sun um, about Biden is playing with fire in a bid for the Hispanic vote, and you're ahead of the curve. This is a good story. They get Biden's rescinding Title 42, which was Trump's policy, essentially um, catch and deport, based on concerns of COVID. I think that was the original genesis. But that is all ending in May, late May, a month from now, more or less, a little more than a month from now. And um, that's going to you, you figure that's going to open the floodgates. Is that right? And he's doing this to try to get the Hispanic vote, which, by the way, he's losing badly on in all the polls. So tell us about it, Liz Peek. Well, it, yeah, I mean, you, you uh, sum up pretty well. Basically, Title 42, according to The New York Times last fall, uh, there were a million seven hundred thousand people who had been summarily expelled from the country, people who had crossed into the country illegally, they were expelled from the country under Title 42. And of course, it's only gotten worse since then. So we're talking probably well north of two, two and a half million people who have been uh, turned around and sent home after they crossed the border under the guise that it was a health emergency. So Trump kind of pulled this rabbit out of a hat faced with, uh, you know, unceasing amounts of people coming into the country illegally. So and and this was one of the things he did that really kind of um, quelled the influx. Now, Biden has been under enormous pressure from activists on the left, people involved with immigration activism to reverse this Title 42 uh, standing because uh, they argued that the health emergency is over And anyway, it was sort of a semi illegal way to kind of make sure all these people left the country. And he and and he resisted to Biden's credit, uh, knowing that he is incredibly underwater on polling approval for his handling of immigration and that Americans are appalled by the scenes of chaos at the southern border. Biden had resisted doing this, but now he has caved. And my contention is and I think it's kind of uh, without a doubt true that seeing his approval standing among Hispanics go down, he is very worried that this group will not turn up in the midterm elections. Uh, I will guarantee you, Larry, they're not going to turn up in the midterm elections because their number one issue is inflation. They are not happy uh, about what Biden and his Democrat colleagues have done in the way of massive spending, which has led to price increases across the board. Uh, and and the, the evidence of this is not just polling, which shows Hispanics souring on the president uh, to an astonishing degree. Historically, Democrats have counted on about 70 percent of the Hispanic vote. And right now it's about 40, 45 percent saying they approve of Biden. But also in the Virginia election uh, and the, uh, some elections that took place in the fall down in Texas, Hispanics are definitely Uh, kind of thinking twice about their allegiance to the Democrat Party. So this is just like what Obama did in 2000, 
2012 mm-hmm. when he faced reelection and Hispanics were uh, defecting in large numbers because he hadn't pushed for immigration reform. He pushed through DACA. This is Biden's DACA. Uh, yeah, that's a great metaphor. And but, you know, Steve Moore, um, I think what we learned is that Hispanic voters don't like the crisis of illegal immigration and the lack of a clear border any more than anybody else. I mean, that's one reason why this thing's going to backfire. And, you know, Hispanic voters are just as law-abiding as any other voter. Uh, very true. And, you know, look, Hispanics don't like the, the word deportation. So it's a word that Republicans should avoid using. But, um, but they are – Hispanics are not political. They're not ideological. They're pocketbook voters. Uh, <laughs> they care uh, about their paycheck. Right. They care about being able to send their kids to good schools and, and that kind of thing. And that's why they, you know, they've kind of wavered from one party to the other. If there's no question um, that Liz is right, that they are trending more Republican because they don't care about issues like, you know, climate change and transgender issues, and all these wacko left-wing um, <laughs> infatuations right now that are completely outside of the strike zone of what Hispanics want. They want jobs and they want higher incomes. And I'll tell you, you know, the the people who are really getting hammered by the Biden inflation, Larry, are um, are the Hispanic uh, kind of middle income working class voters. Right. They get hurt the hardest. That's right. That's that new number. U.S. households face fifty two hundred dollar inflation tax yep. this year that came yep. out of uh, Bloomberg Economics, I guess. But how about uh so, Liz, how about Ukrainian immigrants? Can we have a couple hundred thousand Ukrainian immigrants? They're all going to vote Republican anyway, but I bet you they'll boost the economy. <laughs> well, it's, it is true. The, the problem with getting a lot of Ukrainians to come to the United States, as I understand it, is they hope to go home. They hope to go back to Ukraine. <laughs> that's, that's They're right. actually like Ukraine. Uh, but, <laughs> that's right. You know, you yeah, know. I think you're right. So, so, so Biden has said we'll take 100,000 people, which is really small gruel uh, for a, a country that now has lost. I think it's up now now three and a half million people presumably have left Ukraine and they're all squashing into the, the smaller countries around Ukraine, including Poland. Uh, and it's really difficult. But I, I think, honestly, we will I would think we would open our doors to uh, a lot of these people and should do because they are educated. Uh, and they're going to have to work hard, and they will. And, uh, and, you know, my guess is that would be a pretty good, like like the Vietnamese who came after the Vietnam War, mm. they turned out to be model citizens, mm. very hardworking. And, and my guess is the Ukrainians would, I mean, I have no particular knowledge of their work ethic or whatever, but it seems like they're a pretty industrious uh, group. Yep. And, yeah, we, we need workers. You know, that is probably the number one thing that we continue to struggle for is to get more people working in this country. Well, I think the Ukrainians are kicking some Russian butt right now. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, that's what it looks like. We had Jack Keen on before. I mean, they re- they are really they want to counterattack. In fact, they're bombing Russian depots now. I don't know. It's a very cool story um, how things have changed. Steve Moore. um, you know, you sort of mentioned that in passing, the transgender stuff. But Steve Moore, do you remember the days when corporate, publicly owned corporations were interested in 
a high rate of return, <laughs> making good profits. The good old days. And rewarding their investors and their shareholders. Are you old enough to remember those days? Yeah, that was where they go. You know, I mean, look, this ESG issue, I think, is also really becoming front and center because it's, um, it's hurting the operations of American companies. And so this is basically these um, activist investor groups. They, they don't care about the return on, on the investment. They don't care about the profits of the company. They'll, they'll invest, make small investments in companies like Exxon, and then they'll go to the board meetings and talk about how much they hate oil and gas. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. Well, if you hate oil and gas, why are you in? And th- so they're basically bringing this kind of social um, and environmental agenda to board meetings, and they're succeeding in some cases. And they're changing board members. Uh, they, as I said, they want to make uh, you know the oil and gas companies stop producing oil and gas, and it will it'll have very negative effects on um, shareholders and on pension. My, by the way, I, my take on this, Larry, because we're really starting to look at into this issue more closely, that. Uh, it's not the, the, there was a piece by the Arizona um, uh, Attorney General in the Wall Street Journal. He, he had the story mostly right, but he didn't have it entirely right. He said he said he wants to bring an antitrust suit against these um, uh, these ESG people. That's not it's not antitrust. Mm. It is a it is a um, it is a violation of the fiduciary duty yes. of these of these pension yes. funds. And these investment funds to basically try to persuade these companies to engage in um, economic uh, economic activity that's contrary to that is a great point, Steve Moore. That is a brilliant point. If you had a real SEC, okay, not just not just a you know a climate change uh, fatwa against fossils SEC, but a real SEC would look into that on exactly what you just said. Fiduciary responsibility. Yep. That is a wonderful point, Liz. What do you think? You. I'm yeah, excited totally about agree. that point. I love that point. I, I totally agree. And what's interesting is, uh, if you kind of trace back the origins of this, a lot of the biggest pension funds, like the Teachers Fund out in California, were amongst the first to really push this uh, ESG initiative uh, and and sort of hobble corporations or uh, you know limit their investments in corporations according to things which have nothing to do with returns. Mm. So you could start right there, frankly, uh, Steve, and sort of say these guys really abrogated their responsibility to the teachers of California Mm. by putting that first. And I remember writing about this many years ago and showing that, in fact, the ESG priorities did not work, that, in fact, the returns were not as good as they were for the companies overall. And, of course, in a period like right now, this has really happened because mm. what's really doing well? Energy companies. What is absolutely yeah, right. far down the list of ESG investors? Yeah. Energy companies. So it is. It, I think you're absolutely on the right track, and I agree with Larry. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, that is really a good point. We got to work on that point. Okay. The other point. Speaking of energy, Liz Peak, were you at one point an energy analyst or something on I Wall was. Street or an energy banker? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you're the perfect person to ask. What did you think of Biden's strategic petroleum reserve policy? Uh, well, I mean, really? look, uh, it's yeah, it's it's a desperate measure because he knows that uh, of all the political things happening badly for him right now, it is inflation and most most visibly the price of gasoline that is uh, really costing him at the polls. 
uh, interesting factoid on this, which I will inform you and your audience. I have been told, I'm at a Freedom Works event, by the way, and one of the speakers yesterday said, the polling in March for the president does not change between now and the midterm election. Mm. So we, the polling is what it is. It's not going to get any better. So I think that's kind of good news because it is horrible for Biden right now, no matter what he does. Um, but certainly the, the, the strategic petroleum reserve drawdown is not going to have a long-term impact uh, on, on uh, gas prices. It, it, we have a fundamental mismanagement or mis, misalignment right now, supply and demand. And that's not going to change it, except in the very near term. And by the yeah. way, it's not even really near term. It's not till May. Yeah. No. But by that, the way, you guys yeah. are missing the whole point, though, because the high, higher gas prices, the fact that we're paying $5 or $6 a gallon gas, that's not going to have negatively affect people because, according to the president, we're all going to have electric vehicles. <laughs> um, and so, you know, no, it really, this, this was such a bizarre speech. It's almost like they drink their own Kool-Aid. They, you know, he kept saying, oh, we're well, going to save $80 a gallon, you know, I mean, every time you fill up because you're not going to everybody's going to have Teslas. <laughs> you know, people only have $75,000 to go out and buy a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. Right now, the uh, I, I think I've mentioned this to you before, Larry, on your TV show, but roughly three to four percent of the cars on the road today, yeah. three to four yeah. percent are electric vehicles. Yeah. So that if my math is right, that means 96 percent of us, Joe Biden, are still using gas. <laughs> So the idea that somehow, you know, you're going to have now, I do think he's got a good solution to the to the gas price uh, crisis for the year 2040, you know, but this yeah. is the year 2000, uh, you know, that they just seem so out of touch with reality. Let the me, other thing that he no, said, no, hang on, hang on. I, I got to take a quick break. I want to come back okay. to this because this is even more complicated. And I want to relate to you what Rick Perry told us last night. Uh, okay. On the TV show, but hang on. We got Liz Peak and Steve Moore, two of the best of the best. We're talking money, politics. I'm Kudlow. A quick break, and then we're coming right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peak, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist. New York Sun columnist Steve Moore, Vice Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, Bobzilla, and everything. Stephen, how are you feeling? You feeling better? <laughs> I am feeling good. better. Thank good. you, Larry. Yeah, no, good. All good. Um, look, at, I just want to relate on this Spro thing. First of all, the numbers don't work. I mean, he's going to do a million barrels a day sale from Spro. So that's over six months, $180 million. But when you look at the global picture, I mean, these are globally determined oil prices from which gasoline is then refined. Um, you know, you're 100, uh, 100 million barrels a day supply and demand. So over six months, that's 18 billion, 18 billion barrels per day. So he's going to increase 100 million with demand at 18 billion. I don't really think that's going to have any impact. I mean, Liz said it, it it probably would 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 not have a major impact. I think that was an understatement. But here's the point. I'll throw out both of you. This is what Rick Perry said last night. Remember, Spro is not here to, for what I call political price fixing. Spro is an emergency reserve if you have, let's say, bombing in the Middle East. Okay, Iran bombs all the Saudi oil wells or – you know, massive hurricanes 
in, in the oil patch in Texas, that kind of thing. And what Biden's doing is killing Spro. It's taking a third out of Spro. And, you know, we won't have it there for any emergency reasons, Liz Peek. And I think that's yeah. a very important point. The idea for Spro was not to manipulate prices. It was to yeah. protect us, right, if you have this, you know, very bad emergency, which could be a national security emergency. Yeah, I, I mean, Larry, look, we could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about the incoherence of Biden's energy policy. Obviously, <laughs> this is not the way to fix a problem. We should be doing everything possible, including uh, adding incentives to oil gas companies to drill for oil. Instead, we're taking them away. And obviously, the one of the other major problems is that Saudi Arabia and UAE, United Arab Emirates, have refused to increase production. Well, at the same time that we are begging them to do that and they are refusing to take Biden's phone calls, by the way, we're still pushing an Iran nuclear right. deal that they are violently opposed right. to. So none of it makes any sense. Right. None of it is really going to help in the long term. And I think you really have to kind of just say there is no policy. The country is adrift on this. Certainly the Biden administration is adrift on this. And it's going to cost us a lot of money to fix it. You know, Steve, the other thing that, that Rick Perry said, um, we should be doing everything we can to incentivize fossil fuel drilling. All right, so you have your you, you could have 9000 leases, but they won't give you a permit. So you can't drill and you can't pipeline. But Rick said U.S. liquefied natural gas is the cleanest in the world, much cleaner than Russia's, for example. But also suppose you had a policy of LNG exports to India and or China, which would replace their dirty, dirty coal. So the greenies should want to do LNG exports to India so that India would stop emitting dirty coal. I mean, that's a point. I hadn't really thought about that. But I think Perry is right. I mean, the greenies should want LNG drilling and pipelining. I could never really understand the left's argument against natural gas. I mean, natural gas is a wonder fuel in every way. It is yep. cheap. It's abundant. It's made in America. It's reliable. It's clean burning. I mean, it's everything that you want in, in a, a form of, of energy. And it, it is the single reason, the single biggest reason that the United States of America over the last five years has reduced our carbon emissions more than any other country right. because we've been transitioning to clean, let me say that again, clean burning natural gas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, do you remember, by the way, when this was very funny about five or six years ago when Nancy Pelosi said, I'm, I'm against fossil fuels. I, I like things like natural gas. You didn't even know natural gas. <laughs> I um, do remember but, that. Uh, yeah. uh, the, uh, the point is, that natural gas is, if you care about climate change, absolutely, we should be producing more and more LNG. And the other point, I think I made this on your TV show the other day, but it's important. That if you care about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, the single most important thing that would lead to dramatic reductions in emissions would be to move all coal production, all oil production, and all gas production 
out of China, out of Russia, out of Saudi Arabia, and bring it to the United States. Because our environmental standards and also our our coal and and natural gas are so much cleaner than what they have. So when we reduce the output and production of oil and gas and coal here in the United States, it actually leads to more pollution. You know, our greenies, we have the dumbest greenies. I mean, for example, (laughs) the German greenies are now accepting LNG. Yes. Okay? Our greenies are still running a fatwa against oil fossil fuels. Go ahead, Liz. Larry, you haven't even talked about nuclear. I mean, No, I know, and I love nuclear. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, even Obama agreed that it should be all of the above. All energy sources should be pursued in a quest for, ha-ha, energy independence, which we actually achieved two years ago. I mean, it is astonishing that we were so willing to give that back. We cannot do this again. Energy security is national security. uh, And, you know, we have to learn this apparently every 15 or 20 years. But but the reality has not changed. And by the way, our biggest arts rival, China, would kill to have the energy resources we have because they don't. That's a, no, no, it's all good point. I mean, we have the stupidest greenies. That's the whole problem. And they all live in the White House. I mean, that, and, way, they, guys, and they run these. You know what the I number mean, one. Look at even you know what the Biden. One form of, um, of uh, renewable energy in America is today by far. I think it could be nuclear. Hydro. Hydro. Oh, hydro. Yeah, hydro. hydro. Forgot about hydro. Hydro power is a great way to get electric power. And what? guess what? The Greens are against hydropower. It's about 20% 20 is hydropower. Yeah, we get a huge amount of that. You know, New York gets a lot of its electricity from, from, uh, you know, Niagara Falls, for goodness sake. Now, Liz, why would they be against hydropower? (laughs) Because you're probably, you know, interfering with the breeding cycle of some obscure fish. (laughs) Exactly. my guess. It's Niagara Falls. I mean, there's no fish. I'm just saying. There's no fish in Niagara Falls. (laughs) Maybe there are. I don't know. Hey, I've never yeah, swam. You know. I've never swam around Niagara Falls. No, but we have the dumbest greenies in the world. I mean, honestly, the European greenies are much smarter than our greenies, and Biden is completely incoherent. But you know, Liz, uh, you're right. Everything Biden does is completely incoherent. This is utterly well, I, incoherent. I think, I think it's really interesting because he's in trouble now, and the desperate sort of moves he's making, whether this this thing change at the border. Yeah. Or this ridiculous uh, SPR thing. That's a, that's a mistake. You Thank guys you. are great. Liz Peak and Steve Moore. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Fox Business, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. Check us out. And I'll be back here on radio next Saturday.